Island Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible in part by support from our sponsors The Goose Community Grocer Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Zandi Carlson reads The Interview by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, Zandi will share her response. After that, Scott and Elena will chat about the story and the play by which it's inspired. We hope you enjoy. The Interview by Scott Kaiser Read by Zandi Carlson So, Miss Wood, I've taken a careful look at your credentials, said Professor York, and I have to say I'm quite impressed with what I found. Thank you, Professor, replied Elizabeth. I appreciate you saying that. Edward York was the head of the search committee for the drama department's new acting instructor. He had been at the university for 10 years, was seriously overworked, and was looking to hire someone who could take some of the everyday strain of the job off his shoulders. Elizabeth Wood had been brought to campus by the search committee as a finalist for the job. She was just shy of 30, physically fit, enjoying the long, lean body of a dancer. Upon close examination, you certainly seem to possess the experience that we've been looking for, said Edward. Thank you, Professor, said Elizabeth. When they met, there had been an immediate spark between the two of them, which neither seemed to be able to ignore, despite the fact that this was supposed to be an unbiased job interview. Your willingness to collaborate with your colleagues is certainly a strength, Edward remarked. Edward was in his late thirties and beginning to regret how the fun had gone out of teaching as more and more service and committee work replaced the joy of instruction. Thank you, Professor, said Elizabeth. That's something I've worked hard to develop. Elizabeth was a mediocre actress at best, and for some time had been surviving by working at temp jobs in law firms. Now she was desperately looking for a position in academia to keep a roof over her head. Your commitment to the work has been well established, said Edward. Thank you, Professor, said Elizabeth. And your performance skills have been noted as exceptional. (laughs) Thanks, Professor. Is there anything not on your resume I should know about? Any special skills you'd like to call to my attention? Oh, yes, Professor, I most certainly do. I have many special skills that I would like to call to your attention that I feel would suit the needs of the program perfectly. If we were to make you an offer, how soon could you be available to take the position? I could be available to take a position like this at a moment's notice. You know we offer a generous package of benefits. Yes, Professor. That has been made very clear to me. Officially, I shouldn't say this, Ms. Wood, but off the record, as the head of the search committee, I think I can safely say that the job is yours if you want it. Thank you so much, Professor York. I'm so pleased. It certainly has been a pleasure to meet you, Miss Wood. The pleasure has been mine, I assure you. 
They both laughed with intense pleasure at their little improvisation. Then Elizabeth rolled out of Edward's bed and headed to the bathroom to clean up. She began teaching in September. That was The Interview, read by Zandi Carlson, recording from her home in Seattle, Washington. You may remember Zandi from ISF's 2019 production of Shakespeare's Other Women, also written by Scott Kaiser. Here are some thoughts Zandi had on this story. So this story is kind of problematic, isn't it? Um, Here we have a male professor who has decision-making power in this hiring process. And we have a adult woman uh, who is seeking a job. She needs this. And that kind of complicates their relationship. Can it be truly consensual if someone has more power over you? So if we look at where this is from, Henry VI Part Three, I got to admit, it's not one of the shows that I know that well. Doing a little more research into it, obviously, Professor York, Edward York, is the Duke of York, and then later becomes King Edward IV. And he's, you know, not the greatest guy. (laughs) And he's kind of crude in his advances to Lady Grey, um, Elizabeth Grey, who are young, new professor in this story. Elizabeth is based off of, I'm assuming. So we already have a relationship where in Shakespeare's King Henry VI Part Three, the Duke of York is in a position of power, and Lady Grey, like all women um, back in Shakespeare's day, were kind of at the mercy of these guys, and she she had a need to get married, and that would give her family security. And in this story, Elizabeth needs the security of this job. Um, we all know that. Theater is not the most lucrative profession, especially if you are um, kind of working it in the gig economy, if you're going from job to job to job, which many people are. And the ones who are lucky enough to have salaried positions uh, are able to have a little more stability in their life. And I think that is what our Elizabeth in this story is looking for. Um, But she gets caught up with this guy and Unfortunately, I think, you know, we are making steps away from this. But unfortunately, I think many people in the performing industry know about men who take advantage of younger women. And I think they justify it because sometimes these women don't say no. But when you have someone who is clearly in a position of power, that complicates consent. And I feel like that's what's happening here. Whidbey Telecom, connecting our community. We exist to make internet, phone, security, and entertainment technology simple and worry-free, so our customers can live better, happier lives. So, live the life. We'll connect it. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. You've just heard Zandi Carlson read The Interview. Scott's here to chat about the story and the play on which it's based. Hey, Scott, welcome back. Hi, Alina. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, I'm always happy to to talk with you. (laughs) 
in a conversation, not an interview. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about the interview. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration for this story? Well, uh, it came from uh, um, the third part of King Henry VI, which uh, is everybody's favorite, as you know. <laughs> um, no, it um, it uh, and it's it's a, kind of based on the uh, King Edward the Fourth uh, scene where he tries to seduce uh, Elizabeth Wood, otherwise known as Lady Grey, the widow. Um, and he, uh, he tries to seduce her and, uh, she resists and, uh, much to the, uh, chagrin of, um, Edward's brothers, he offers her, uh, his hand in marriage, uh, which is a, a shocking outcome. Um, but it, it is a, basically a, a seduction scene where, uh, you know, the power, uh, play, uh, is, is at work. And that was very much the inspiration that, that particular scene, um, for the story. That's wonderful. Um, you have a monologue that you have written of Lady Jane Grey in Shakespeare's Other Women. Can you tell me a little bit about why that character interests you? Um, oh, um, yes, I've, I've forgotten about that monologue. Thank you for asking that. I, I think she's just gotten a bad rap. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, the way she's spoken of in Richard III in particular, um, you know, as a witch and as a sorceress, uh, um, historically speaking, she was no such thing. She was a, a peacemaker. Um, she tried desperately to bring the family together um, uh, during uh, the reign of, of uh, King Edward IV. Um, and uh, I think Shakespeare gave her uh, a really rather abysmal treatment in Richard um, III. And so I really wanted to redeem her and show her in that monologue, um, you know, much uh, more uh, aligned with the actual history, which was someone who uh, was a peacemaker in her family. Uh, you know, obviously there are modern parallels. There's, of course, you know, Princess Diana, who uh, came into the royal family and initially was uh, much maligned. Um, but she, you know, uh, did everything she could to to make peace within the family, to humanize the family, um, and of course, uh, the story of Meghan Markle now uh, is is in a very similar place where uh, she was uh, demonized. Um, that is very much, I think, uh, a Lady Grey's story as well in Richard III, um, and so I was hoping to salvage her reputation a little bit in that monologue. Oh, I love that. Thanks, thanks for doing that. <laughs> um... Can you give a little bit more kind of context for the play and um, where where this scene fits? Um, do you mean in the in the the history the his, the histories uh, in the Henry VI plays? Is, is, is that yeah, what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's in the third part. Um, you know, King Edward the Fourth is uh, is the first uh, York to get back on the throne. Um, and, uh, you know, his selection of a queen is, is desperately important. Uh, and the, so the thought that, um, you know, Edward would take on a widow with children, uh, is, is extremely shocking and unusual at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, Edward doesn't want to listen to any advice. So, uh, this whole idea that, uh, that, you know, the Lady Grey, the widow, uh, becomes queen with existing children, um, is really quite shocking and disconcerting uh, in, in the play. Um, and of course, they, the two of them have a child um, at the end of that, uh, uh, that play. 
Uh, and that is the beginning, of course, of uh, um, Richard III, those, uh, the, the, the son and sons of Edward and Elizabeth uh, are the princes in the tower that are murdered. Right, right. Um, I always find it so interesting when studying Shakespeare's histories, and we call them the histories, but they are written from a perspective and kind of with an agenda. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, who Shakespeare was writing the histories for and why that perspective uh, is what it is. Wink, wink. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to remember, you know, that all of these wars and these histories eventually lead up um, in Richard III to um, Richmond taking over the throne from Richard III, um, Richmond, of course, becomes uh, Henry VII, um, and Henry VII was the father of Henry VIII, who was Queen Elizabeth's father. So it, it is um, it is a family um, history, and uh, Shakespeare was well aware of the fact that the Queen at the time, you know, her father's father uh, got the throne by um, throwing over Richard III, who was a York, uh, who uh, and the York family took the throne during the Wars of the Roses. So it, it, it goes back, but it is all interconnected. Uh, you cannot look at Shakespeare's patronage uh, from Queen Elizabeth without understanding that that patronage depended on a rather favorable uh, look at um, at uh, the the history that led to Queen Elizabeth ending up on the throne in the first place. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, in, in recent years, I feel like maybe sort of since the discovery of Richard III's skeleton <laughs> a few years ago. Yes, back. yes, in a uh, parking garage, yes. Right, right. A, or parking lot, rather. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was reading that. I was reading Richard III at the time because um, ISF was working on it and... Uh, I was dramaturging from afar and uh, I had closed that scene of his murder when I had the news on in the background or something and saw that pop up and it was very eerie. (laughs) But um, I feel like there's a lot more that's come out about who he was in a in a sort of more objective way. Uh, in recent years that really illustrates how he's how he, um, we in our in our modern culture have identified so much with Shakespeare's portrayal of him and have really hung on to that and then to learn more about who he really was as a as a person after the discovery of his skeleton has I think has been very interesting well there's there's certainly been a lot of scholarship uh, recently uh, that uh, suggests that Richard III was not the despot that we think uh, he was based on Shakespeare's play. Um, you know, he certainly has been uh, portrayed uh, in Shakespeare as as the embodiment of evil, the way we think about Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. But uh, there is recent scholarship that suggests that he wasn't nearly uh, as bad as um, Shakespeare portrayed him. And again, um, as I said before, the reason for that is to make it clear why it was okay for um, a Richmond 
Henry VII to take over from the York line and, and, and make it possible for Queen Elizabeth to become queen. And, and I think the, the important thing here is to keep in mind um, that history is, is always written by the victors and the, um, the losers' stories are buried or distorted or oppressed. Uh, that's certainly been the uh, case in our own country. Um, when we think about the, uh, the genocide perpetrated on Native Americans in this country, um, we, uh, as um, European imports, uh, have been telling that story uh, for uh, a very long time. And um, the distortion of that story is something that we can certainly relate to in our own lives um, in terms of uh, we view it in a way that is favorable to ourselves. Right. Absolutely. Uh, this Henry cycle is one that we don't see super often. I'm curious if you've had the opportunity. Well, I know that you worked on it, is This is one that you adapted the three into two, correct? Right. At, at Oregon Shakespeare in two, 2004, um, I was the adapter and co-director um, I adapted the Henry VI plays, uh, the three Henry VI plays, into two shows. Um, the first one was in the uh, Thomas Theater, and that was Henry VI Part One, and I called that Talbot and Joan. Um, the second part was called Henry and Margaret. That combined Henry VI Two and Henry VI Three. Um, and that was a three-hour show outdoors in the Elizabethan. Uh, and it was possible on a few days during the year to see the whole cycle in a single day. Um, or you could stay for a couple of days and see it. But uh, while it, both parts were running, you could see the entire uh, sequence of Henry VI plays uh, during a stay in Ashland. Um, I did a very, very deep dive into the three Henry Sixes. I had to basically break something like you know eleven or twelve hours of material down to something like uh, you know five or six hours. So it was it was a long and um, and challenging process to reduce those plays into two independent uh, theatrical productions. Yeah, and in our conversation about your story, Partners, which uh, aired back in December. Lexi Chipman read Partners for us. Um, that that story had based on part two, Henry VI, part two. Um, I'm curious if these two stories intersect at all in, in your retelling of them. Oh, you mean the, um, yes, Partners and the interview? They don't actually. They, I think they stand on their own. They, I don't think there is a, a an overlap there. And, and especially when I sat down to write something based upon, I wasn't trying to overlap. I mean, Suffolk and Queen Margaret uh, are not really part of the interview story uh, at all. Um, they, then the Henry Sixes, I will say, were one of the, some of the trickier stories to try to adapt. So um, really... Uh, Rather than trying to encompass the whole play in both those versions um, and in a story we'll talk about later, which is based on uh, the Joan LaPoucelle, um, that uh, really sticking to a single scene from those plays is, was the only way I could really find a way to uh, to create a modern short story from them. Yeah. Um, can you was there anything else that was particularly challenging for you about these these plays in particular? About the Henry Sixes? Uh-huh. 
Well, just tracking everybody. Uh, there, is, there is an enormous number of characters in these two plays. Um, and even a cast, I think we had a cast of 23 or 24 in the Elizabethan version. Um, we still had multiple doubling, tripling um, issues that we had to deal with. Um, the indoor version, the uh, Talbot and Joan, uh, I think we had a cast of 12. And uh, there, again, there was multiple doubling and tripling. And uh, it's tricky uh, when you have all these uh, Yorks and Lancasters, um, these two families that are feuding. Uh, anytime you double across family lines, you confuse the audience. Like, well, he was a York, <laughs> you know, what's he doing in this scene? You know, um, And of course, we used all the uh, costuming tricks that you can use, which is, you know, keeping the, the white rose and the red rose extremely prominent in costuming to try to uh, make sure that the audience can follow who is who. Um, but it, it is very challenging. There are huge, sprawling uh, stories. And uh, the minute you double... Uh, audiences tend to get confused. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, we we talk so much about in in the histories. The histories are so much about the War of the Roses. Can you just give us a really brief explanation of what that is? <laughs> <laughs> in like, you know, under. <laughs> <laughs> Under two minutes. <laughs> you have two minutes. Go. Explain the War of the Roses. Well, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, um, the deposition of Richard II um, by Bolingbroke, who becomes King Henry I, is really the beginning of this uh, feud that goes on for 100 years. Um, Richard II uh, was deposed... Um, and then uh, as you go to King Henry IV, one, Henry IV, two, uh, Henry V, um, and you keep going all the way through these uh, Henrys, Henry VI, one, two, three, um, until you get to, um, until you get to uh, literally, uh, you know, the end of all those Henrys, uh, does the pendulum swing back, essentially. But it was a family feud, essentially, these two branches of the same family uh, fighting over the crown for a hundred years and uh, extremely bloody, extremely dis destructive, extremely expensive um, and, um, uh, you know, and deadly. But in, in its essence, it was, uh, it was a, a, a feud between the, the Yorks and the Lancasters over control of the crown of England. This just dawned on me, but that idea of family feud, I wonder if there's any if there's any um, dramaturgical evidence for that being part of the inspiration for what happens in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, it's it's certainly possible. I, I mean, I, I don't really know uh, in a scholarly sense uh, what R&J is based on, but you know, there's no question that the idea of a family feud is is a is a long-standing literary trope. I mean, Game of Thrones uh, is certainly one. Um, my uh, wife and I were watching uh, the Kevin Costner um, series Yellowstone, which is essentially a family feud, um, and uh, certainly you know in this country the. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember the was the Southern Family Feud the uh, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, I mean, so the, the Family Feud is a very familiar literary trope, uh, um, and uh, um, I think you know in the case of English history, it was it was actual history, but uh, it certainly has been a part of literature for a very long time. 
Yes, it has, and I'm sure it will be for generations to come. (laughs) So is there any real-life inspiration behind this story? There is, um, and I I don't want to get too uh, deeply into um, the actual facts of the case, but uh, I will say, like so many of us, we have seen in real life um, how... um, physical attraction can be part of a bias in hiring. Um, I have certainly witnessed that uh, personally um, and had it affect me personally. Um, I, and as I say, I won't go into detail, but uh, there's no question that when I wrote the story, I had, uh, I had uh, that in mind, um, how uh, sometimes the best candidate um, is passed over or overlooked because there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a, physical attraction or some sort of bias uh, in the hiring process um, that supersedes uh, smart hiring. Definitely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being here. Thank you, Alina. We'll talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium. 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwong. This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whitby Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.